Well, good morning again. Good to see you all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 21? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We, uh, you're at the end of a study in the Gospel of John. We've been going through it for a while, a couple weeks, and um, we, uh, we'll be finishing it soon. But uh, we... Uh, have come to the final chapter in John's Gospel, an, an epilogue, if you will, which John inserted so that his readers would know what happened to Peter after his denial of Jesus and how he was restored to his apostleship. But guys, as we have said, not only that, this chapter teaches us some very important lessons about true love, God's love, which can and should be applied to our marriages or to any other human relationship that we have as Christians because we're commanded to love all with the love of God. Now, last couple of weeks we looked at the first part of our outline. Uh, we called it, True Love is Not Words, It's a Commitment. That covered verses 1 to 14. True Love is Not Words, It's a Commitment. Brings us to the second part of our outline, which is, True Love is Not Feelings, It's Service. So look at verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now I want you to notice something before we actually get into the heart of the message this morning. Notice how Jesus dealt with Peter here. This whole thing is about Peter's restoration, uh, the end of John's gospel. So notice how Jesus dealt with Peter's failure publicly publicly i mean he did it right in front of the other disciples um you remember how those other disciples were present in the upper room the night before jesus crucifixion and they all heard peter say to the lord after jesus said before the night is out you're all going to be um you're all going to be stumbled because of me and peter said though these are stumbled i will never be stumbled my love for you is stronger than theirs my commitment to you is stronger than theirs. And Jesus said, well, I'm going to read this in a second, but I'm, I'm doing it already. So Jesus said to Peter, uh, before the night is out, before the rooster, rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. So these guys heard that, that promise Jesus made. To, and and Jesus, Peter responded, Lord, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And so they heard that promise that Peter made to Jesus. And um, even though Peter... Uh, failed to make good on that promise. Uh, it was something that the other disciples heard. It was something that was public. And I think there's an important principle here. If something, uh, private sins should be dealt with privately between you and God. Public sins must be dealt with publicly. I, I, I want to bring this out because years ago I heard, I was at a conference and I heard a pastor talking about this. And uh, this happened in his church. There was a guy, and uh, he was not a new Christian. I guess he was been a Christian for a while. And uh, he started to develop feelings for another woman in the church. In fact, those feelings became pretty intense, became lust. So he went to the elders and, and confessed it, and they prayed with him. And um, he brought his heart before the Lord, and God began to give him victory. Uh, after a little while, he stopped thinking of this. He started praying for her. When you pray for somebody, it's very hard to lust after them. That's a good rule. 
So he started praying for her and things, and God took away the lust and everything. But in a moment of transparency, he thought he should go and confess the sin to her. And so that's what he did. This gal never had any feelings, inappropriate feelings for him before. But when he told her he had been lusting after her and God had given him victory, it planted the seeds in her head. And all of a sudden she starts having um, feelings about him and started lusting after him. Eventually they committed adultery with each other and their marriage is ended. So be careful. Private sins you, you deal with between you and God. If it's a public sin, uh, it has to be dealt with with the elders and getting things out on, in the open so that there can be uh, healing, forgiveness, restoration, and so on. But again, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, we don't know who the these were he was talking about. We weren't there to see him pointing to whatever it was. I feel uh, he was probably pointing to the other disciples. Again, bringing up Peter's promise to Jesus in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. I know I just quoted it, but turn to Matthew 26, because I want to, and I chose Matthew because his is a little more detailed um, than the other Gospels. But just so you know, this took place in the upper room the night before. Uh, Jesus was crucified. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Now, guys, I believe, and I've said this before, I believe Peter was absolutely sincere when he said this. I believe he truly in his heart believed that he was strong enough if the other disciples stumbled and they um, the word he uses uh, was uh, yeah but stumbled because of me um, uh, he said though they fail I will not fail you and I really believe Peter was sincere of course again it was a promise that he couldn't or didn't come through on you say well why not well because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and one of the things Jesus was doing with Peter in restoring him back to fellowship with, this, with Jesus and to ministry was that he had, to bring to, he had to bring this up because it got into the whole idea of Peter putting more confidence in his flesh than trusting in the power of God, right? That's why Jesus told Peter the night before he went to the cross he was going to fail him by denying him three times. He gave him warning in advance, not because he wanted to crush Peter, but to prepare him for what was coming. That the Lord knew what Peter was going to do. Peter was confident the Lord was wrong. But see, whenever you go there, you're in a wrong place. Okay? You're Peter, you're, you know, not so Lord. Well, you know, you never say not so to your Lord. 
uh, especially if it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never wrong. Lord, you're really mistaken now. I know you know all things, but I, I really feel on this issue. No, right? But you have to understand that at this point, Peter's failure, as we're going to talk about, Peter was devastated. But the Lord allowed all of this because he had to teach Peter a valuable lesson. Peter, if you're going to go forward and serve me in the future, and Peter's best days serving the Lord were yet future. If you're going to really be used by me to serve me, you're going to have to stop putting confidence in your own strength, and you're going to have to rely on my strength, the power of the Spirit, right? That was a lesson that Peter had to learn. He learned it the hard way, hopefully, because Peter learned it. Peter fell. We can learn from Peter and not have to suffer the same thing in our own relationship. But look, as we look at John 21, verses 15 to 17, which is the heart of the message I want to give today, um, and again, it deals with Jesus' restoration of Peter, it's interesting that Jesus asks Peter three times if he loved him. Why three times? Well, no doubt, one for each of Peter's denials of Jesus. What's interesting to me, though, is how Jesus handled this. All right? How Jesus handled this. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't ask Peter, Simon, are you sorry for what you did? Simon, will you promise never to do it again? Simon, have you learned your lesson? That's probably how I would have handled it. Jesus is much smarter and wiser than me. No, instead, he, Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Why? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. It's because the kind of loyalty and obedience the Lord wants from us, he wants based on love, not on legalistic duty. I mean, didn't he say earlier in the evening in John 14, John 14, chapter 14, the night before his crucifixion, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, the Greek word for love that Jesus uses here is the verb form of the Greek word agape. It's agapao. The Greek form of the word agape. Excuse me, the, um, uh, the uh, verb form. Agape is a word that is usually used in the New Testament to speak of God's love. Yeah, it's a love that's deep, fervent, and unconditional. That's God's love. Deep, fervent, and unconditional. So Jesus is asking Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me deeply, fervently, and unconditionally? To which Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, what you don't know from the English is that Peter responds with a different Greek word than Jesus used. He responds with the Greek word phileo, which is a word that is used for friendship love. In other words, it's a word that means fondness or affection kind of love. So when Jesus asked Peter, 
Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me deeply, fervently, and unconditionally? Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. The question is, why didn't Peter respond with the higher word for love, agape? I mean, didn't Peter really love Jesus deeply, fervently, and unconditionally? I believe he did. And I further believe that Peter, with all of his heart, wanted to say, Yes, Lord, I agapao you. I love you deeply, fervently, and unconditionally. So why didn't he? Why didn't he? He didn't because <laughs> how could Peter say that to Jesus, knowing he had a few days earlier denied even knowing the Lord? And that was after he promised that he would die before he would ever deny his Lord. Have you ever found yourself, I don't know, in a place similar to Peter's? Where you blew it. You did something pretty bad. Maybe it was another time you committed a sin that you've been committing for a long time. Have asked God, I don't know how many times to forgive you. Whatever it might be. And you fell to that sin once more. You knew you blew it. You feel terrible. And you come before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm really sorry. Lord, I don't want to keep doing this. Lord, please forgive me. And if the Lord would have asked you in that moment, do you love me? You'd want to say, Lord, I do love you with all my heart. I really love you. But you'd feel like a hypocrite saying it, wouldn't you? You might be prone like Peter to say, well, Lord, I, I am fond of you. I mean, I can't say I agapao you, but I, I, I am fond of you. And even though Peter's love was imperfect, as is ours, Jesus still commissions him into the ministry when he said to Peter, feed my lambs. Aren't you glad God doesn't only use perfect people? There wouldn't be anybody being, we know that. But aren't you glad he doesn't use, he only use people who are just, man, they got it all together. Don't you hate those kind of folks? Um, <laughs> they, they always have it together. Their, their hair is never out of place. They look good in anything they wear. Um, I don't know. Aren't you glad God, they're super smart. I'm so glad God uses guys like me. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He, he said, you know, not many very, very intelligent does God use. I'm, he doesn't say not any, he said not many. But the folks he usually uses are the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Why does God use those kind of folks most times to do ministry through? Because when God works through people like that, he gets the glory. When God works through a guy like me, nobody's going to look at me and go, I know why God's using him. Look at how tall and handsome he is. Wow, look at how articulate. No, of course not. And people go, there's no way that goofy guy did this. It's God. And God gets the glory. 
And that's what I want. I know you want that too, right? Um, so feed my lambs. Verse 16. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me deeply, fervently, and unconditionally? Again, Jesus using the Greek verb uh, for agape, agapao. And the second time Peter responded, Yes, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. Now, when Peter said that, Jesus responded, Tend my sheep. The Greek word is poimen. We get the English word pastor from that Greek word. Pastor my sheep, Peter. What does it mean to be a pastor? It means to watch over the sheep, protect them, and so on. And that's what a pastor is. We are shepherds of God's sheep. God did say through the prophet Jeremiah, during a time of national apostasy, when false doctrine was rampant, all the shepherds pretty much were corrupted. They were in it for the bucks, the recognition, whatever it was. And God says there's coming a day when I am going to raise up and give you shepherds according to my heart. And they're going to feed you with my word faithfully. So Jesus said to Peter, Pastor my sheep. Verse 17, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. When Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, do you, son of Jonah, do you love me? This time Jesus used the Greek word phileo. Peter, are you fond of me? Here Jesus comes down to Peter's level. And this really devastated Peter. Jesus came down to Peter's level because Peter would not rise to the Lord's level. It's always a sad day when we force the Lord to come down to our level rather than rising to his level, which is the level of total commitment. I remember my pastor used to say years ago, God will do for you the best he can do for you on whatever level you choose to live at with him. God would love you to be, you know, at the highest level. But God will do for you the best he can on whatever level you choose to live with. I was telling first service, God wants you living in the penthouse. A lot of Christians are content to live in the basement. Well, it's still in the building. Somebody came up to me after first service and said, when you said that, I looked at my wife because we used to live in a basement apartment. You know the problem with a basement apartment is? It floods. That's kind of the way it is spiritually with living in the basement of your walk with Jesus. He always allows the tribulations and trials. Why? He's trying to force you out of your comfort zone. He's trying to lift you to a higher level. 
Not that the tribulation starts or the persecution or trials end, but it's that he's always trying to push us higher. He always wants us to live at a higher level than we are living at because he can bless us more, use us more, and so on. Again, the Lord always desires to lift me, to lift you to the highest level in my relationship with him. Paul prayed for this. You have to turn to it, but Ephesians 3, Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. It applies to all of God's people. He's, Paul said, my prayer is that you would know, the verse 19, Ephesians 3, that you would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, human understanding, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now look, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying that we as finite human beings can be filled with the fullness of God who is infinite. That's not what he's talking about. That's not going to happen. But I want God to fill me as much as he can fill me with himself. It's like taking a thimble down to the ocean. You're never going to get that all that ocean into that little thimble. But if you dip it in the water, what's in that thimble is pure ocean water to the top. If we draw close to the Lord every day, if we stay close to Him in fellowship, if to use Jesus' words, if we abide in Him, something interesting happens. As we are close to Him, fellowshipping with Him, abiding with Him, the Spirit of God begins to flow into our lives more and more. Think of another illustration. Think, say you got an eight ounce glass, clear glass. It's got six ounces of dirt in it. But you take it over to the faucet and you put it down and you turn the faucet on and the water's running. And as the water's filling that cup, it's pushing the dirt out, right? Until finally all you have is a cup of pure or a glass of pure water. There's a lot of junk in me. For all these years of ministry, there's a, there's a lot of junk still. But I know the only cure for that is to keep drawing close to Jesus. As I keep drawing close to him, he keeps filling me with his spirit. And as he does, it starts pushing the flesh out, the garbage. And although I'll never be perfect this side of glory, I want to be as full of the Lord as I possibly can be. Because the more I stay in contact with him and communion with him, the more his spirit fills me, overflows me, and purifies me. Let me just say this. It is sad when a Christian, because of carnality and compromise, is satisfied with living at a lower level of relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, a total full-on, madly in love with kind of relationship with him that allows us to enjoy him and fellowship with him to the fullest. As I said last week, carnal, carnal Christianity, or excuse me, well, carnal, you can throw that in there too, but casual Christianity has become a real problem in the church today where too many Christians just want to be Friends with Jesus. They're content to live at the level of friendship with the Lord. Instead of making a full-on commitment to him as in marriage. 
And again, last week's message, you can go online and listen to it. We talked about this at length. Jesus doesn't want to date you. He wants to marry you. All throughout the New Testament, we see that. The commitment involved in marrying Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. We are his bride, if we accept. It, it, it speaks of a whole different level of relationship. There is nobody in this world I am closer with except for God than my wife. She knows me better than anyone knows me. Folks think they know me. You don't know me like my wife knows me. And she knows me, faults, flaws, and all. And she still loves me. I'm very blessed. As much as she loves me the way I am, God loves me even more. Because my I can hide things from my wife. She knows me better than anybody. But I have things in my heart I could I could if I wanted to hide from her. I can't hide those things from God. He knows my heart. In fact, he knows my heart better than I know my heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who knows the heart? God says, I know the heart. Jesus Christ does not want a casual relationship with us. He wants a full-on, total commitment relationship, the kind we see in marriage. Now, when Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, are you fond of me? Peter now was a broken man. He said, Lord, you know all things. I don't, but you do. I thought I could stand up and be strong and not deny you when others would have. So I don't know anything. You know me better than I know myself. You know. You know. And the Greek word for know here is interesting. It's a word that we get when you, um, for lack of a better term, hang out with somebody for a long time. You get to know them, right? And Peter is saying, Lord, I have been walking with you for the last three and a half years. I know I'm not perfect. But Lord, you know me. You know me. And I just appeal to your omniscience because you can look into my heart and you know I'm not perfect. But you know I love you. Why did this crush Peter? Here's what I think Peter was actually saying, what he was feeling. Let me read it to you. Um, I've kind of paraphrased it. I think Peter was saying, Lord, I know my love for you isn't all it should be. I know that. But please don't question whether I have any love for you at all. Lord, I know my actions don't show that I agapao you, that I love you fervently and deeply and unconditionally. But you know everything there is to know, which includes the things of my heart. You know that I am at least fond of you. Don't take that away from me. Please, Lord. I know I've blown it, and I know I don't always measure up. We love Peter because he was so, he wore his heart in his sleeve. 
He was the first to run in for Jesus somewhere. Yeah, he put his foot in his mouth, and sure, he messed up at times. But I love his heart. I love his zeal for the Lord. I'd rather a person be zealous for God and make some mistakes than somebody who never did anything from God and just played it safe their whole life. Remember, Peter was the guy that stepped out of the boat on the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus came walking on the water and they all thought he was a ghost. And, and they were terrified and Jesus is me. And Peter said, well, if it's you, Lord, allow me to step out of the boat and come walking to you on the water. Because Jesus was walking to them on the water. Jesus said, come on. Peter gets out of the boat, takes a few steps, looks around. What am I doing? I can't walk on water. Looks at the size of the waves, starts to sink. Got his eyes off of Jesus. That's why he went under, started to go under at least. Cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Jesus reached out, pulled him up. Why did you doubt? Now, Peter, people get down on Peter. Oh, there's Peter again, you know. Shooting his mouth off. Let me come walking on the water to you. Big shot, Peter. He, he was, it was good that he started to sink. He needed a lesson in humility. Well, maybe he did. But what about the 11 other guys that stayed in the boat and played it safe? At least Peter walked on water for a while. At least Peter knew what it was like to have God work a miracle in his life. I don't know about you, but I don't want to play it safe in the boat the rest of my life. And I don't even know what I'm asking the Lord. Pray for me. All as I know is, I would rather be a Peter than somebody who never takes any chances for the Lord. But Peter, I, I believe with all his heart, he wanted to say, Lord, you know, I'm, I love you with all my heart. But he didn't feel he could because he had blown it so badly. It's one thing to mess up. It's another thing to go on record and say, Lord, these losers, they're going to deny you maybe. I'll never deny you. I'll die before I deny you. See, that, was, that was a pretty big statement of, right, self-confidence. That's why Jesus dealt with Peter as harsh as he did. Peter had a great heart, but he needed to get his head in line with the Spirit. But Jesus, Peter appealed to Jesus on missions. I love what, and maybe John, I know the Spirit of God, wrote through John. Gospel, three epistles, revelation, I know that. But that doesn't mean the Spirit of God couldn't use something from this encounter to put something into John's heart that he wrote down in 1 John 3. Here it is. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Peter did the right thing. Lord, I'm not going to tell you how much I love you. I've blown it. But you can see my heart. You know that even when I mess up, I love you. And we got to remember that. We're all a work in progress, right? Look, I know we're not all we want to be, but we're certainly not all we once were. Let's understand that. Sure, when I blow it, I feel terrible. The devil's there to condemn. But we have to take a couple of steps back and say, look, 
I know I'm not all that I believe God wants me to be yet. But praise Jesus, I'm not all that I once was either. We are a work in progress, guys. So the third time, after Jesus said, well, Peter, are you fond of me? Peter was broken. Jesus said to Peter in verse 17, feed my sheep. Now, Peter didn't feel, at least at this moment, at that moment, that he could say he truly loved Jesus deeply, fervently, and unconditionally. But he would be able to someday. Again, we're all a work in progress. It's wrong for us to judge any brother or sister in Christ at one point in their journey with the Lord. I was telling first service, I, I've, I've been in ministry 41 years. And there are people that knew me, you know, 40 years ago. And I didn't handle the situation right, did something wrong. And they left the church. In their minds, I'm still the guy I was 40 years ago. They don't understand that we're all a work in progress. We're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good heavens, I like to think I'm not all that I should be. I like to think that I've grown a little bit. Someday, Peter was going to be able to say, Lord, I love you deeply, fervently, and unconditionally. When? Read verses 18 and 19. We'll study them next week. Peter, there's a cross in your future. You don't go to the cross unless you love Jesus fervently, passionately, and unconditionally. So Jesus, when he responded to Peter, uh, essentially responded this way. Peter, and this is what he's teaching Peter. Peter, true love for me, and of course for others, is not expressed in feelings, listen, but in commitment and in service. If you truly love me, then feed and take care of my sheep. We can only say we love, we can say we love the Lord all we want. But he wants us to demonstrate our love by loving people and taking care of them. Pastors taking care of their sheep. Parents taking care of their children. Or anybody else that has come under your care. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 40. Whatever you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for me. Again, we can tell people we love them, but if we don't show them love in a tangible way, what good is it? It's nothing but empty rhetoric. Turn to 1 John 3. We read this a couple weeks ago, but I think we need to read it again. 1 John 3, starting with verse 16. I'll read it to you out of the NLT. Here's what John said. And again, John might be, he might be thinking about what Jesus taught Peter through this whole thing. And now he's writing it down for all of us to glean. But 1 John 3, 16, we know that we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in, in need but shows no compassion, in other words, doesn't give them any food, clothing, or whatever it is that they need to survive, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. You have the money and you see a brother or a sister really having a hard time, but ready to lose their car because they can't make a car payment. They're that broke. Hey, I hope it works. let me pray with you. We're famous for that. We pray, which is good, but often we think that's the end of our responsibility. Hey, I hope that works out. I'll be praying for you. Goodbye. You have the money. Maybe you can help them with a the car payment or groceries or the rent. I know we can't help everybody, but we can certainly help those God leads across our paths. I think one of the things Jesus is teaching Peter is because Peter was devastated. Feelings-wise, he was crushed by what he did. Jesus is telling him, Peter, I know you're devastated. I know your feelings are really hurt because of how you failed me. But he's telling Peter that don't let feelings get in the way of your responsibility to doing for doing what I'm calling you to do. In other words, he was not to focus on how he felt about the Lord. He was he was the focus on his service for the Lord. You know, too often we only serve the Lord when we feel like it. Our feelings become the motivation for service instead of God's agape love. We have to be careful for, about this. Because there are a lot of times people are motivated only by feelings. And uh, then they hear Jesus say something like, um, Love your enemies. How can I love my enemies? I don't leave, I don't like my enemies. How can I do for my enemies? Well, that's the problem. You got it backwards. He didn't say when you feel like helping your enemies, do it. He said, help them, and eventually you'll feel like it. Feelings always come after obedience. That's something the Bible teaches us. That's how you can love your enemies. How? Jesus defined our enemies. Anybody? He, def, he defined our neighbors, but it also includes anybody. Anyone who has a need, meet that need. You help people. If you help somebody who doesn't like you, somebody that is on the record that they hate Christians, and God opens the door for you to help them in some way, they might not love you right away, but if you continue to try to help them, not only will they soften towards you and ultimately towards God, you're going to find something interesting. The more you help a person, the more you have invested in their life, and the more you're going to feel like helping them in the future. The feelings will come of compassion and kindness and so on. Now, let me end this message with a warning. 
a warning that may confuse. I try not to. As we have said in this point, this second point of our outline, true love is not feelings, it's service. Be careful. i got to give a caveat here. Be careful that you don't offer Jesus service instead of or in place of true love either. Turn to Revelation 2. You all know it, but I want to take you there. Revelation chapter 2, uh, Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus dictated a, a letter to the church of Ephesus. And I'm just going to pick it up in verse 2. He said to this church, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. That's good. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Also good. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored, the Greek is to the point of exhaustion, for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Great. Would the God Jesus could say all those things about our church. Verse 4. Nevertheless, uh-oh, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. All the good things they had going on, all the positive works of service were being negated by one thing that overrode all the other good stuff. They had left their first love. They were going through the motions, but they had lost the emotion in their relationship with Jesus. Their church was a well-oiled machine. But God doesn't want machines cranking out emotionless service. He wants service that's born out of a deep love that God's people have for him, his bride, Jesus' bride. Um, Jesus wants service that's born out of that a deep love on the part of his people for their bridegroom, for Jesus Christ. Jesus said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, right? He didn't say the greatest commandment is that you serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, here's where I don't want to confuse. I said just a second ago that true love is not feelings, it's service. And now it sounds like I'm saying, well, you know, it's not service either. No, let me explain love is expressed in service true love that's true but service is not necessarily done out of love that was the problem with the church of ephesus oh they were serving it just wasn't service that was motivated by love that was the problem notice he doesn't say the they lost their first love he says they left their first love. It didn't happen all at once. I mean, this was written maybe 60 years after the church got saved and was started, I mean. By this time, they had drifted. Be careful. The Bible warns us, be careful you don't drift in your faith. Stay anchored. 
That's the words that the writer of the Hebrews uses. Stay anchored to Jesus Christ. Because if you don't, we have a tendency to drift. Folks, I have seen it so many times in 41 years of ministry, I can't even tell you. Somebody gets saved, they're at church every time the doors are open, they're so full of the Holy Spirit, they're bringing friends and family, they're out witnessing on the street corners, uh, at the mall. I mean, they're just filled with the Holy Spirit. They're at every service when the church is open, prayer meetings, Bible studies. But then I've seen maybe after six months or so, I start seeing them not show up for prayer meetings. Not that you have to be at every prayer meeting and Bible study. I'm just talking about folks that I've seen in the past. And then I stop seeing them coming to a Wednesday night regularly. And then not at all after a while. And Sunday, I never missed a Sunday. All of a sudden, now they're missing a Sunday every month. And then after a while, a couple Sundays. Eventually, I don't even see them anymore. After a couple of weeks, I give them a call. Hey, what's going on? Are you all right? I haven't seen you in a while. I'm just busy at work, Pastor. I'll be back eventually. You know, just taking a little break. Well, taking a little break from God? How about you take a break from golf? How do you take a break from something that's not going to affect you spiritually? And for a lot of those folks, I never saw them again. I hope they got revived and are going to another church. This drifting can happen so subtly and slowly, you don't even realize it at first. Weymouth's New Testament translation of this passage reads, and I quote, Yet I have this against you, that you no longer love me as you did at first. What is first love? Well, it's the passionate love for Jesus that often characterizes a new believer. It's the I can't think of anyone else kind of fervent love that newlyweds have for each other in a word it's honeymoon love and while true marriage and while it is true in marriage I should say that love deepens and grows richer over time it's also true that ideally a marriage should not ever really lose passion the passion of those honeymoon days you know what the word Ephesus means Revelation 2 verse 1 or uh, 2 verse 1, the word Ephesus means darling or desired one. You see, they were still desired by the Lord, but he was no longer desired by them as at the beginning of their relationship with him. This also happened to Israel, as you well know, a cooling off in their love for the Lord that he laments uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, I'll just read to you Jeremiah 2, verse 2. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Guys, the worst thing that can happen to any relationship, whether you're talking about your relationship with God or your spouse, 
is when you begin to take the other for granted. See, the church at Ephesus fell into the trap of thinking that loveless service was enough to please the Lord. Again, I've said it before, let me say it again. It would be like a wife who says to her husband, I don't love you anymore. I have no feelings at all for you. But I'm not going to divorce you. I'm going to honor the commitment I made to God, Christian couple. I'm going to stay. I'm going to, you know, clean the house and cook your meals and take the kids to soccer and whatever. But I have no feelings for you at all anymore. Now, I don't know what man would say something to the effect when he heard his wife say that. Well, I can live with that. Okay. Come on. Look, and again, I said it before, let me say it again. I didn't marry my wife because I wanted somebody to cook my meals and clean my house. I can hire people to do that. I married Cindy because I fell in love with her, and she fell in love with me. And now all that she does for me, which is a lot, are, it's special and it's um, beautiful because I know it's an expression of her, of her love for me. But if there was no love, it would be meaningless service. It's obvious that Jesus feels the same way and wants more than service in our relationship with him. He wants passion. He wants fire. He wants honeymoon love. Remember, he is holding his church in his nail-scarred hands. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus standing in front of you with his hands grasping your face, looking into your eyes and saying, if you only knew how much I love you. I'm crazy in love with you. I think about you all the time. And you look him back in the eyes and say, well, hey, that's great. I'm, I'm fond of you. You know. Some Christians think like, well, I, I love Jesus. I'm not one of those crazy Christians. I mean, come on, you have to be a, uh, you know, a Bible-thumping weirdo to be a Christian. I'm fond of Jesus. Great. Wonderful. He's not fond of you. He's crazy in love with you and proved it by dying for you and me. Guys, all Christians love Jesus in some way, shape, or form. But not all Christians are in love with Jesus. Again, I love my sister. I'm in love with my wife. And we all know what that means. We all know the difference. How do I fall in love with Jesus? I don't even know how to do that, you might be thinking. I'll just share this quickly. We'll, we'll close. How do you fall in love with Jesus? Well, how do you fall in love with your future spouse? You met. You spend time with each other. You got to know one another. You hung out. You did things together. What did you do when you first fell in love with Jesus? Oh, I get up early and did devotions. Do it again. Remember what Jesus said, verse 4 or 5, Revelation 
Two, you've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do your first works. What did you do when you first got Oh, I got up early every morning, did my devotions, do them again. Everywhere I went, I had Christian songs on the radio, and I was praising the Lord, do it again. Well, I was hanging out in church all the time and fellowshipping with Christians, do it again. And pray. Pray, Lord, I don't have the kind of love for you I want to have. I admit that. Right now, I kind of think I'm fond of you. At least that's the way I seem to act. But Lord, I want to be able to say, I am crazy in love with you. I love you deeply, fervently, and, fervently and unconditionally. Lord, I need you to give me that love. Doesn't the Bible say he works in us both to what? Will and to do of his good pleasure. How can he not answer a prayer like that? Lord, I want to love you more. I don't like the kind of love I give you. It's too selfish and carnal and in it for me. I want to love you the way you love me. I want to die to myself that I can put you first in everything. How can God not answer a prayer like that if you mean it with all your heart? Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage in your word that deals with the way you dealt with Peter. And we love Peter. Look forward to meeting Peter. But give us grace, Lord, to keep drawing close to you, not making you promises that we can't keep, promises rooted in our own fleshly strength. Lord, please give us grace to draw close to you, that you would fill us to overflowing with your spirit, pushing all the garbage out, filling us to overflowing with the spirit of God and your love. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.